welcome to the Scarlet Tavern. Grab a drink, take a seat, and let's begin. Today we're diving deep into the surreal episode you probably never learned about in school, the Hanafi Siege of Washington, D.C. Buckle up as we unravel this intense 39-hour standoff that once shook this nation's capital to its core. This is Scarlet Tavern. Welcome back. We're back. All right. So, um, before we get into this, um, I know we have actually had some new listeners, some new areas of the world we have explored. Ben, we have made it to New Finland. Oh boy, oh, cool. the newfies! Cool. Welcome, newfies. We, we are in the we are in New Finland officially, um, and oh, then cool. just a little bit outside of that, kind of in between New Finland and Canada. Um, so we're we've reached a few places there. Um, nice, welcome I, everybody. I believe we're moving into Denmark as well. Ooh. Um, so I know we have Germany. We have. Uh, I think we have one or two in Japan, if I'm not mistaken. Well, we'll definitely have to, in honor of our new Japanese listeners, we're going to have to find something uh, to talk about from Japan. I know that there's got to... I know what we will talk about. We will go ahead and talk about the Suicide Forest. Uh, Yeah. That's a huge one in Japan. Um, Actually, I can give you guys an exact here... Let me see. So, yeah, we are in the bottom part of Hell on Earth, Australia. Um, is that which, an actual town, or is you? Just... No, we Australia <laughs> is is not a real country. Um, it, it's a, it's a survival zone. It, it's literally Hell on Earth. Uh, but no, we are in Sydney and Melbourne, from what I can look at. Um, we have reached. Looks like we are just outside of Singapore. Oh. Uh, we are in multiple places in India. We are in a few places in the Middle East. Um, including... Let's see. let's see, that looks like we're in Turkey. Oh. Um, we Turkey? are going to be moving in... Looks like we're starting to move into like... Uh, Kuwait area actually. Oh, I bet. Maybe, I did maybe it some, there. maybe some of our people out there. Um, yeah. Hey, hey. So our, yeah. I, actually, I got a sergeant. I got somebody I know out there too. We are in Kenya. Uh, we are just outside of South Sudan. Oh. Uh, just outside of Angola. Uh, actually, we're in the on the border of Mozambique. Um, so we've we've really gone global. Yeah, I mean we are in we haven't hit Italy yet. Uh, we're in uh, Greece. We get, we'll get there. Yeah. We'll get there. We'll get to Italy. We'll get to Italy. We are in the UK. I mean, yeah, that they're all losers there, anyways. But ouch. 
Please don't direct the hate mail to me, please. Please. Seventeen seventy-six. Seventeen seventy-six. Do do you, just please tell us? Do you guys cry on Fourth of July? I I think they just drink. <laughs> uh, I, I think they just drink an uh, amount of tea to make up I, for those I got into Boston Harbor. I I have a friend that lives in England, and I text him every Fourth of July and ask him if he's doing okay. Um, but yeah, we're, I mean, we're in Deutschland, we're in, actually, we did hit Oslo. Oh, Norway, oh yeah. Yeah, we are in Norway, um, and then, of course, we're all over the U.S. Um, we are actually, I'm sorry, we are in, we are not in New Finland, I, I apologize, we're in New Brunswick. New Brunswick, oh. Close enough. Yeah, don't worry, Newfoundland. We'll get they're all, you soon. They're all the same. Uh, we are in Alaska as well, so pretty cool. We yeah. we've hit oh, people in Washington and Oregon. So we oh, today's at Washington State or DC? Uh, Washington State. Do we have uh, any DC? Let's see. Uh, just outside. Uh, that's more Virginia, Leesburg, and yeah. Uh, well, for in between Fredericksburg and Washington D.C. Yeah. Well, we're gonna have we're gonna be talking a lot about Washington D.C. today, and um, probably yeah. w- one of the um, really one of the not necessarily the first uh, terrorist attack in the, in American history, but this is certainly one of the meets the technical definition of the first. Uh, Islamic terrorist in America, and this is long before nine uh, eleven, the first World Trade Center, or any uh, or any other sub uh, terrorist attacks against the United States. Uh, this happened, and this is the Hanafi. Hanafi? How did you pronounce it, Caleb? The I could Han- never Hanafi. Hanafi. I I I've read the it's whole not, thing and everything. And I was like Hanafi. I can't, I can't pronounce it. I could, even when I was reading all the research and doing everything, I couldn't pronounce it. It was like that thing. <laughs> and, but uh, and the the reason I brought up the new followers is because since we do have some new people listening, I just want to do a, a few quick introductions so that people understand a little bit of our background and where we come from. Um, my name is. Caleb, I am the, uh, well, for those that don't know, Scarlet Tavern started out of our, our Dungeons and Dragon, uh, live stream that we do called Dungeons and Magi. Um, we have a production company called Damn Media and we decided to do a true crime podcast because we're true crime fans um, so we decided to start Scarlet Tavern, which pulls from a little bit from our campaign. If you are interested, you can go, uh, look at all of that stuff. Uh, and you can find us on our website. Um, but I am the CEO of damn media. Um, I was born and raised in Florida, uh, currently live in Kentucky, but I, Joined the military at 18, joined the Air Force, did military police. I guarded nuclear weapons, got a top secret security clearance. Uh, Then I left the military, went into civilian law enforcement. And my last two years in law enforcement was 
federal doing fugitive extradition alongside the marshals. Um, so we, we all have a little bit different law enforcement experience. So we will be playing off of each other in those different experiences. Uh, Aaron, would you like to go next? Uh, my name is Aaron. I am, I guess the, what, um, director of merchandising, director of merchandising. <laughs> I, I'm not good with titles, man. He's also um, my dad. Of merchandising for Dungeons and Magi. I'm also owner of Raven's Nest Dice, which uh, supplies our players and others around the world, including Australia. I've sent some to Australia, uh, several sets, as a matter of fact. Very expensive. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, I, I mean, mailing stuff into penal colonies is very expensive. Yeah, you're not kidding. Um, I have, uh, an extensive background in, uh, law enforcement, um, 20 years, um, plus, uh, medical and first responder and things of that nature. Um, a lot of, uh, tactical schools and, uh, training and being an instructor and different things. So I kind of bring, uh, that to the table, you know? Um, but yeah, that's me. All right, Ben. Dunkin' Donuts ben. is better than Tim Hortons. Yeah, this is the night where I. Uh... Oh, perfect. We can't hear you. Uh, God, I hate this mic just wants to work. Hi, I'm Ben. Uh, first off, Tim Hortons is better than Dunks. Um, I am the COO of Damn Media. Uh, I am the second, you would say, the second in command of everything. Um, I have about seven years of military law enforcement behind my belt and about just a little bit under in civilian uh, security, working various, working various types of security after my stint in the military. Uh, I am from New York, Buffalo, New York. Where I currently live. Hopefully, very soon, I will be moving to Kentucky, and I will be saying goodbye to New York forever. <laughs> Thank God. Um, but I am also a true crime aficionado, and I, Caleb and Eric will tell you I have a very funny way of finding these very lesser-known incidents and world American and world criminal history and just world history in general. And that is me in a nutshell. Yeah, so that's us. Um, when you, the it's kind of what sets us apart from other true crime podcasts is we do give you our perspective on the law enforcement side of things, and we admit when law enforcement fucks up, we tell you why we think they fucked up and how we would do things differently. Um, and the differences between law enforcement back then when some of this stuff happened to how it is now, um, where Ben and I have more of the modern experience and my dad has more of the, the old school law enforcement experience because he retired in 2008. And um, let's face it, he was there when the police did. When what? <laughs> he was there when the police force was created. Yeah. Oh yeah, man. I, I was the reason why the the term copper was was coined. The the mm. he he's the reason the Pinkertons were formed. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Screw you, Watsy. Um. All right. So. <laughs>
Send the Pinkertons after me. I bet you they can't beat me. Um, all right, so let's get into it, Ben. Yeah, all right. The Hanafi, uh, Hanafi. Hanafi Siege. Hanafi. Hanafi Siege of Washington. <laughs> uh, this is a, like I said, this is a very often overlooked or not well-known uh, incident in American history, in American criminal history, terrorism history, as a matter of fact, because this does, this does actually qualify, qualify as a actual terrorist incident. This, it's got height, it's got, uh, kidnapping, well, not kidnapping, kidnap, hostage taking is a better word for it. Hostage taking, there's murder, there's, um, all kinds of political and religious motivations. Uh, I guess to really get into it, we got to look at the at the beginning where it all began. So the origins of this start with one man, uh, Hamas Abdul Khalis, born Ernest Timothy McGee. Uh, this was an African American individual. Um, he was born in Gary, Indiana. He was, um, he actually served during World War II, um, but he was sectioned eight out of, um, out of the army before he even completed boot camp because he was described as uh, crazy schizophrenic. I believe the terms were used for him. Uh, he definitely was out there. No one ever, at first the army thought that he was just trying to get out of serving, but he, he kind of was a little, little off his rocker uh soon he uh was sent back home to um back to indiana uh while he was there um he actually started had actually him he met his wife and he they had actually not long converted to islam and soon became um pretty integral and in what the movement known as uh which is still around today the uh, nation of islam uh anybody who remembers uh Nation of Islam from the 1960s um, being pretty big in the uh, civil rights, uh, the more militant side of the civil rights movement. Uh, uh, this was a one of the first major, uh, what do they call it, like Black Islam movements in America. Is also like it was also used as a Black nationalistic movement as a move a uh, vehicle for that uh specifically led by uh, elijah muhammad or um so i gotta keep this name right here hamas uh Kallis, Kallis becomes soon becomes one of the secretaries in charge of um nation of islam he works very very close in hand with elijah muhammad and his family um during this time, he um, he starts becoming very disillusioned with Elijah Muhammad. Uh, Elijah Muhammad is a very controversial figure, even when, even during the early days. He many of the key positions were were filled by his family. Uh, he started referring, having people refer himself as the Honorable Prophet Elijah, which anybody who knows a idea of islam knows that this is a this is a big no-no so in islam muhammad the prophet is no is referred to as the last prophet he is there are no other pro there are prophets before him but there are no prophets after him so callus um 
started he was he started having a problem with that and on top of that his mental mental health was also starting to play a big factor he started becoming very erratic he was Elijah Muhammad started sidelining him in favor of other people in in the movement specifically one of the people that became a rising star at this point when Callis leaves is uh, Malcolm X uh, Malcolm X was uh, was just start was star, star was starting to rise to becoming a big central speaking figure and uh, recruiter for Nation of Islam when Collis left when Collis took his family and he left. So after he after he left after motive, but then he left. He moved to Harlem under. Um, and started run and started founding his own movement. Uh, Caleb, please tell me how to pronounce it again. <laughs> I'm sorry, everybody. I the really Hanafi, the Hanafi movement. Oh, uh, he st- before before we get to that, you missed an important part oh, of did. the Nation of Islam. Is this man was the person to convert Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to Islam? So Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, of course, before Islam was Lou Alcindor, um, was still a huge, huge NBA star in the 70s. If you don't know who Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is, you're living under a rock. Yeah. Um, everything from his regular NBA days to, of course, it's most famous with the Harlem Globetrotters. He's been a movie star. He was in, uh, what's that Explain. movie with Jet Li? Uh... I don't. I know. I think I know what you're talking about. He's like he's like one of the big bosses on one of the levels that Jet Li goes through. He was in the Last Dragon. Yes. 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 Great. Great movie. He was also in the movie Airplane. Yeah. So Kareem Abdul-Jabbar would not have been Islamic if it was not for this man. So not only was he involved with Malcolm X, but he was involved with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And it should be noted that his familiarity with Bruce Lee was not just in the acting realm. Yeah. He was a student of Bruce Lee. Correct. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is a black belt in multiple martial arts. Um, He's been trained by Bruce Lee as well as Chuck Norris. Yeah. So imagine a seven foot two martial artist coming at you. Yeah. Um, I think that's how big he is, but yeah. 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 He's a pretty big guy. That's just, uh, let's all be grateful Kareem Abdul-Jabbar just decided to stick to basketball. <laughs> but uh, yes, that was it. That Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was a convert and a pupil of um, of um, Abdul Khalis. Um, in fact, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's uh, career and his fi- his money he made from basketball would would in part um, fund the Hanafi the Hanafi movement. A lot of this when they were living in when they eventually moved to Washington D.C. and Kareem was um, I don't know where he was playing at the time at, in the seven at this point of the seventies I know he was he was nearby I don't know if it was Philadelphia or New York he was playing with but he was frequently there and hit, and part of his salary he made from the NBA was funding this movement to open this uh, like a school and a movement and they quickly started in the Washington DC area started getting a lot of converts and he was um Cal- he, he bought a mansion for Callis 
Oh yeah, yeah. Now Kareem Bass was his headquarters. Yeah, Kareem was very much under this man's influence. They were very devoted to him. Um. Now what? Now while this is going on, um. Abdul Khalas is still trying to become an influential member in the um, African American Islamic community. He's still he's still trying to surpass surpass Elijah Muhammad and kind of supplant him in the terms of the role for him. Very much so, he's always seen as like a a glory hound. That's how very many people in the nation Islam saw him as when he was when he was still in good standing he was trying to kind of wheedle his way into the good graces of elijah muhammad by you know just being a, a hanger on um but when he was eventually forced out he basically made it his mission to destroy elijah he started a letter writing campaign to many of the um Nation of Islam chapters in New York and other places, and basically saying, "No, oh, he's a he's an infidel. He is uh, he's not adhering to the true course of Islam. You should, you know, basically listen to me." Uh, Elijah Muhammad also had a, he he had very much a reputation of this is it's my way or no way. If I can't, if you if you don't follow me, if you're not with me, I will destroy you. Yeah. Um, I- and at this point, the Nation of Islam, which it still is this way, is very racist. Very. If you are not of Middle Eastern descent, you did not belong in Islam, according to them. So with with Khalis being African-American, an African-American Muslim... And same thing with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He, this was, to them, this was a big no-no. And I'm surprised he even made it as far as he did in the NOI. Um, yeah, I think he mostly got to that because he was... He, he basically, he was just a follower. Hanger. Endeared himself to Elijah. And he was able to... He, he was allowed to be tolerated, essentially. He wasn't... They didn't really... They didn't... At the end of the day, with Elijah Muhammad, it, as long as you basically worshipped him, I think there's... Really, honestly, Nation of Islam under Elijah Muhammad really was more like a cult than anything. All reference and deference was given to Elijah Muhammad. He was called the Prophet Muhammad... He was our prophet Elijah. He never went that far. <laughs> yeah, I know. But he did call himself the only messenger of Allah. Exactly, which is, this is, I, I, I'm shocked that they didn't, I'm shocked he lasted as long as he did. He had but, a lot of people under his thumb. And also, Islam at this point, yes, there's been, there has been, immigration from Islam, the Middle East and other Islamic countries in American history at this point, but they are not enough where I mean, they where they're like where it is today where we're all interconnected and people just come from all over and they can see this, you know, the, the Islamic, the Muslim community in America at this point is still kind of isolated outside of certain areas. Um, but 
when um, Abdul Khalees is doing this, uh, Elijah Muhammad starts at this point. His Elijah Muhammad, he is at this point. I'm going to eliminate them. And one of the people that he, one of the organizations that he frequently used, or used because most things were never traced back to him. Nothing that could ever be proven in court was the Black Mafia. Okay, Aaron, I don't know. Did you ever run into any of these guys when you were in Florida? These guys were all over the place, I, and they were involved in a lot of interstate drugs well, and the, crime. This was 1970s. I mean, they were they were around a little bit in the 80s, but he, he wasn't. Oh, a, I, was, he, I he forgot was, you. He wasn't a cop until the late 80s, Eight, early 90s. 89, yeah, 89, 90 was when I started. Um, he was three I mean, years old at this point, dude. Not hey, even. Hey, everybody's well, not I, even at that point. No. Uh, well, in 77 was when the siege took place. Well, I'm, I'm talking about the, the Black Mafia. The, the Black Mafia 67 was when January, it was... The start of this is January 12, 1973. Yeah, so I'm I'm three years old at this point. Um, <laughs> involved. You you knew what was going on, do I, Man, I, I, was, I was following them every single the day. I, I kept... <laughs> A, a tree going on uh but no um <laughs> like in when i started in florida in 89 90 there was there was some um you know hanging on the tail tailcoats you know basically trying to say that they were you know kind of thing but um at that time uh it was more the gangbangers for the Bloods and the Crips mm. and Latin Kings. So we didn't have a whole lot, uh, at least where I was. Um, you know, you get over um, Tampa, St. Petersburg. Um, they were pretty big up there, uh, mm. or over there, I should say. Yeah, um, the, these guys started to fall out mid mid eighties. Yeah, mid eighties. Always, I always wonder because every time I, when I was doing the research for this, I look inevitably. I look started looking up the Black Mafia, and I never could find a. Usually, some some or, some criminal organizations have an end date like this. This one never seemed to have one. So I was no, just I mean they never had an official end date. They kind of petered out. Um, and you know, you would arrest, uh, a couple, um, questionable clientele, so to speak, uh, over the years. And, and they would claim to be, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm part of this group and I'm part of that group. And you're like, yeah, okay, whatever. Um, uh, nothing was really given credence in, in that regard. So, yeah, well, I bring up the Black Mafia because this is an organization that many of its members also members of the Nation of Islam and would inevitably carry some, carry out some of the more off-the-books heinous crimes that were. We knew, everybody in law enforcement knew it was Nation of Islam, Elijah Muhammad taking care of this, but nothing could be proven back to him. Uh, one of the one of they believe, um, depending on who you ask, they believe that this was carried out the infamous uh, assassination of Malcolm X. Uh, Malcolm X was at this point when he died, he had he had broken off from uh, Nation of Islam to form his own organization after he had taken his um, 
the the journey, the pilgrimage to Mecca, and actually had sat down with actual like Islamic scholars and teachers in the Middle East, and he came back very profoundly changed and nowhere near as radical as he yeah. was on religion that he started. And what what people need to understand is the nation of Islam in the seventies and eighties led to what we have been fighting with now in the Middle East. It started out Nation of Islam where they were a little off the reservation and then people just went completely radical. If, if for those, unfortunately, the Islam gets a very bad rap because of people like this, because of terrorists. But for those of us that fought with this and dealt with this, if you actually study Islam at its core, it is a very peaceful religion. It is all about love and acceptance and not too far off from what Christianity was originally designed as. And with, with some alterations of course but yeah. it's all about acceptance and all of that but just like with everything else like when the christian crusades happened and things like that you have radicalists that took what they wanted out of these texts twisted it to benefit themselves and what they wanted to happen fed it out into these people that are hurting and broken and have no idea what to do and I forget his name, but there's a kid I actually went to high school with that became a terrorist and actually drove a, uh, tanker into a building and killed a bunch of people. Um, he's from my small little hometown and he was one of those kids that was just broken and was horrible in school and nobody liked him. And turns out that he was recruited by a terrorist organization and ended up committing a terrorist act. And we'll, and that is how these organizations generally do it. And the Hanafi movement is no different in the sense that they may not have started off radicalized and as militant as Nation of Islam and other subsequent black nationalist organizations were, but they targeted the same, they, they went after the same people. And unfortunately in 1970s America, there's plenty of people like that in the African American communities. Now I mentioned Malcolm X is one of them, but there was another one, which I, uh, that was another, um, horrible massacre. And it's actually called the Hanafi Massacre of 1973. This would actually be one of the driving forces for the siege that we will see that would happen a few that happened some years later. 1973, several black mafia affiliates they traveled to Washington D.C. and they carried out um, a. It started. It, it basically was a home invasion. Because, as Caleb said, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar bought this very expansive house for uh, Abdul Khalis and his family, which they used as their headquarters for their movement. They showed up under the guise of wanting literature and possibly to join this movement. They arrowed into the home and killed 
about five members of uh, Abdul Khalees' family, including, I believe, his wife, his children, five of his children, and two of his... Uh, uh, two people that worked with his movement were all killed in here. The only survivor of this was his daughter, Amina. Um, now, the police did actually fought, were able to find uh, find the individuals. Unfortunately, there was very little evidence. The only, As I said, the only person who survived this was Amina, and Amina had actually suffered a gunshot wound to the head that left her with uh, permanent... Um, permanent brain damage to the point where during the trial now the uh, Abdul Khalees's family had actually begged the prosecution to just take a sworn statement from her so that she didn't have to um that she didn't so she wouldn't have to testify during trial unfortunately I don't they, I don't think they were aware that a sworn statement like that could be taken and used as evidence in a court. Um, so the prosecutor um, put her on the stand, and unfortunately she got about halfway through the testimony when she had an emotional breakdown and just bolted out of the court, and the judge actually had to issue a warrant for her to for arrest to bring her back. And eventually the trial ended in a mistrial. Um, so, but after that, no char for years there would be no charges our trial for any of these subsequent gunmen and this led to the uh abdul khalis to feel that um the system had failed him and his family because despite this he 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 did actually i mean he did actually believe that you know oh i'm gonna get some justice you know finally they're gonna they're gonna bring the bring muhammad elijah muhammad to justice and that just never happened um, so this would lead him down the path that would lead to the siege. This would lead him to have him and his followers enact this uh, fairly well orchestrated um, uh, attack. So we fast forward to 1977, March 9th, 1977. This is the day when the siege began. Now the first three buildings would be um, take would be taken uh, taken over and uh, held hot and people would be held hostage uh the first one was the ben nye benrith international center now just a quick background for that that is one of the oldest uh jewish organiza charity organizations excuse me uh, that was that is one of the oldest uh, jewish charity organizations in the united states these guys were founded back in the 1840s and Ever since then, they've worked to help to, to enrich and better the uh, Jewish community in the United States. Uh, this is where Abdul Khalees and most of his people took hostages. Um, they rented a U-Haul van. They drove. They more or less just drove right up to the be to the front of the building, and they got out um, and they just started grabbing guns like duffel bags full of guns crates full of guns and gasoline and ammunition and they just walked through the lobby of it and subsequently struck one of the one security guard that was on duty in there and took the elevator up to the I believe it was the 5th or 6th floor and started taking hostages and sort of started moving through there they took they ended up taking about a hundred and 
I think about a hundred and thirty-four hostages. This included the staff and visitors that, that were there for that day. Um, very, they were able to gain control very, very quickly. Um, most of the, most of the, nobody really knew there were actually some people who were able to get out of the way. Um, so like, um, um, lock they, and, uh, I think one person was able to actually escape down the, uh, the stairwell and, and, um, and get out of the building and start alert and alerting everybody to, to that something was going on now at the same time that this is happening uh, um across the on look the islamic center of washington the i believe it was the first major islamic major islamic center built in washington dc if not the united states i can't remember specifically um uh three members of the hanafi of movement who were all actually siblings moved into the uh, Islamic center just as um, more uh, prayers were, I think it was afternoon prayers had started. Uh, they made a beeline right for the office and they were able to start taking hostages and locking down the office area. Uh, they took about 11 people hostage. One of them was actually the head of the, of the center. Now, um, at this point, they start the Washington D.C. police are actually starting to respond. They had first responded to the Benai Center, but as they, um, their but then their attention is immediately diverted to the to the Islamic Center, and then just as the, around and just around the exact same time, in a matter of like, I believe it was like a, a window of ten minutes. Uh, the district building, which is uh, this is the city hall, essentially of the District of Columbia. This is where the city council meets and everything. Uh, group of the same of same men of the same movement got went up to the fifth floor of the district building where the council office is offices are, and started taking start. Were able to move in fairly quickly and uh, started taking city councilmen hostage. This one was a little more not. I, I don't think they put the, the 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 good people there. This was like, hey, let's see if we can take this well, because uh, people were still able to move. We're still moving in and out of the on the hallway just before, just as they're taking hostage. Now, interesting to note, this is the also the only place where the uh, two two uh, two fatalities would um, would occur. The first being. Um, Security guard named um, Mark Contrell was shot. He didn't die initially. He actually he would die days later due to uh, complications from his wounds there. And uh, Maurice Williams was a 24-year-old uh, reporter for WHURFM at Howard University Radio Station. He was there for a press conference that was supposed to be scheduled that day from the council president. Uh, another interesting person who was um, he did he was seriously wounded, but he survived. Uh, Marion Barry. This is the future. This is this was a city councilman. He would actually be the future uh, mayor of Washington D.C. Very also controversial figure, uh, not just because of his policies, but also because he was the 
mayor that was caught on camera and recording smoking crack cocaine years later not done at this point yeah he 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 was convicted and they still reelected. it's because of ptsd yeah 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 he actually actually he was very lucky to survive ricochet shotgun pellet had actually hit him in the chest and had just got and entered just above the heart so obviously like i think it was like a half an inch lower he's dead and dc has to would later have to deal have a new mayor yeah that uh that picture that i posted of pics and handouts that's the kid from my hometown um dad he was he lived at lakes at sandridge Oh, really? Yeah, I went to school with him. His For those that want to look at it, his name was Moner, M-O-N-E-R, Mohammed Abul Saleh. Um, he was he's he was American, um, and I went, like I said, I went to school with him. He mostly lived in Fort Pierce, but I went to school with him. And he, the crazy thing about him is everybody knows the 2016 Orlando nightclub shooting. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the most famous shootings. Well, the guy that committed that, Omar Mateen, he and this kid, uh, Abul Salah, were in the same mosque. Uh, Omar Mateen told the FBI that the shooting was a, was inspired by the kid I went to school with. So hmm. the kid I went to school with was being tracked by the FBI when he left for Syria. And he ended up going to Syria and driving a truck into a building, um, killing, uh, he ended up killing, uh, himself and several Syrian troops. Um, and he was part of the, uh, Al-Nusra front. Ah, okay. Yeah, so he was... sort of ISIS, if anyone isn't aware. And he was the first known American suicide bomber to die in Syria. And people can go watch his video. There's actually a video of him out there. Um, But but yeah, he even has his own wiki page and everything. So my my small little hometown in Florida uh, produced a suicide bomber. Yeah. Yeah. On average for Florida. Yeah. (laughs) Um, well, as this is going on, all three incidences, as this is all going on, I say the district bat, the district building was the one that was the more, the one that didn't initially succeed because this is the one where the police were initially on hand being city hall and everything. The hostage, the hostage takers actually got into a brief gunfight with, um, Washington DC's, um, special operations of SOD. Now at this point, there's not a SWAT team in the strictest traditional sense as we know it. Uh, SWAT teams, as, as this at this point in American policing thing, is is still being formed. Each city has their own kind of um, idea of how this should be. Um, Washington, D.C. kind of took the measured approach like New York City did, where they just kind of they used it when they had to. Um, but a lot of times DC was very big on hostage negotiating, um, as we will see, as we are about to see. Um, so at this point, DC is starting to become to a standstill now because every, where these are located are on Belmont Avenue, Massachusetts Avenue. And I forget, it didn't, I don't believe it. I remember seeing where, 
um, the city hall was located. Um, but it's actually, it's on Pennsylvania Avenue, actually. It's actually right, not that far from the White House, actually. That's what, that was probably initially when me was starting to grab the headlines. Basically, there's a shooting right down the road from the White House. So as this is happening, D.C. is coming to a standstill. Every, these roads are being blocked off. Buildings are being evacuated. Um around around all the buildings uh the holiday inn which was the biggest hotels in this area that was outside of the uh b'nai banal the jewish center um has been evacuated so people are displaced this is where the the idea of the siege starts coming place because with just these three buildings washington for the most part was brought to a standstill nobody can move uh now as this is going on the um abdul khalis is uh initially starts shouting to the initial officers he wants to talk he wants to he starts demand making demands of what he'll do if he if um so he'll let the hostages go if not he'll start he said uh, quote he would start you know throwing heads out there for um for everybody to see um he demanded um that the killers of his family would be brought to justice. He demanded Elijah Muhammad, and um, interestingly enough, also he demanded Muhammad Ali be delivered to him. Muhammad Ali at this point is actually the one big uh, spokesman for Nation of Islam at, at this point. So, um, and then very, also very bizarrely, um, he also demanded that um, he, and this was the more immediate one because it was about to um, be premiering that, uh, I believe that day, uh, the movie, the motion picture Muhammad, Messenger of God, was supposed to be premiering that day or at least the, um, with, within the, on that day or? The next day, at, a, at some at select theaters in New York City, uh, this was a mo uh, epic motion picture. Ma interestingly enough, made by and uh, produced by a Muslim, a uh, a man from Syria, from Lebanon, uh, about the you know Muhammad. But as also another thing about another uh, fact about Islam is that images of the prophet are prohibited if you ever look at photos there are there are no photos there are no paintings or murals or any kind of the prophet muhammad and to do so is considered blasphemous so you can see why even for years this film was very controversial and many influential imams and islamic scholars get it shut down to no avail uh, but this was one of the immediate demands of the of the hostage takers was that this film would be, you know, not allowed to play in theaters. Very bizarre. And um, initial response uh, of the um, of the police was actually w was pretty decent at the time, considering the coordinated effort. Um, now, um, at, um, at trying to combat this, uh, now initially the, 
the Justice Department under Douglas Heck and Rudy Giuliani had they organized a team within the Justice Department at com, uh, combating terrorism, but they they did allow uh, the DC police to actually handle this. Uh, there were um, there were individuals from the FBI and other intelligence um, organizations sent representatives to try and help out in the situation. Um, luckily enough, they nobody ever tried to take this away from the DC police, and they were allowed to um, uh, handle the negotiation. Now, um, the what they what the police eventually settled on was just basically waiting these waiting these guys out. Um, they figured that they were eventually, if they played a lot of, um, stalling tactics, um, with the, the, with the, um, with the hostage takers, they would be able to bring about a peaceful resolution. Um, Khalees would, um, um, would be started becoming very erratic while in there. Many of the hostage takers said that initially when he gave a very long winded speech about uh islam and how he hated yadi which is uh the muslim uh islamic term for jewish for jew um and started brandishing a sword in there um, many of the hostage takers were had machetes and other such things so this this was a very tense situation but um they were able to more or less wait them out. Now there was um, no initial uh, demand, as we would see like years later in other hostage situations, um, for like to storm the building. Um, the the problem the many the police worried that they were if they had tried that they would they would. Um, they, it would result in the death of many people, and of course, this is they don't have an idea of what is going on in here. So they were they they had no I guess no eyes and ears in there. Um, as this would go on, they uh, were able to bring in actually um, ambassadors from the um, Pakistan, Egypt, and I believe what was the other country there was Iran Iran were able to bring in their ambassadors and now they would also play a very pivotal role in there because they were able obviously being fellow Muslims and being educated many of them were were able to talk to Khalis Abdul and um, were able to kind of essentially talk him down They they were able to talk him down and able to um, kind of calm them down and get them to start like releasing hostages. There were some some hostages who were wounded in the initial taking of the buildings were released. Um, the FBI also helped were able to bring in some of the first ever profilers to build a psychological profile on Abdul Khalis and um, some and kind of find the motives and use that to in their negotiation with him. Um, it's just, it really played out as very bizarre. It it did, it did kind of, at the time it did grab the attention of everybody, but it also at the same time didn't really, it, it didn't really, um, 
garner like international attention like I think he was hoping for. Eventually, once he was able to be talked down and the hostages were released, and actually initially the um the hostage takers were going to be released on their own I, th- I believe they were arrested and then they were arraigned on very low bail now dur- after the after this they were able to during the trial they would eventually um they would uh they would be convicted Elijah Muhammad was, uh, not Elijah, excuse me uh Abdul Khalis was um sentenced to 21 to 120 years in prison and he would eventually he would die in prison yeah he died in may 25th 2003 in the prison hospital his death is described as being due to natural causes but who knows yeah i mean so i mean he wasn't he wasn't that old no, no, he wasn't. He probably so, natural causes, quote unquote. I mean, many, many people who had crossed a lot, crossed the nation of Islam or these other kind of black nationalist movements, and met untimely, uh, untimely ends in prison. In fact, I believe one of the one of the people who was the assailant in um, Abdul Khalis's family's killing would be killed in prison as well. Um, I just, I, I always found when I was researching the, the police response, the DC response, both, um, unusual for its time. And also it, it didn't, it seemed like they were kind of trying to feel around for it. Cause one of the things that happened initially, like even an hour after the top, the thing the abdul khalis was able to call the islamic center and he was coordinating with his other people his other associates in the other buildings and i just why the heck did they were they not i way i understand it and again aaron and caleb please correct me because i've never had any training on this but in a hostage situation aren't you supposed to like isolate these guys like so that they can't Okay. Communicate. So, yes, but we have to not only keep in mind the times. This is the seventies. Again, a lot of the stuff is brand new, and on top of that, this is the first American terrorist attack, major terrorist attack. You're you're having simultaneous targets being hit. You're having three separate targets within the same area. I I mean, so DC, for those that don't know, you have the regular DC police, but then you you also have the Capitol Police. Um, Capitol Police are one of the oldest law enforcements. Um, they were founded, I believe it was 1828, when they moved everybody to DC, uh, from Philly to DC. But... Um, so Capitol Police has been around a long time, but none of them ever had to deal with terrorists. Nobody nobody was stupid enough to threaten America and do all of this stuff. Um, and even after this, the Capitol Police... Um, I know Ben and I both were going to go Capitol Police at mm-hmm. one point. Um, and... 
the Capitol Police didn't really change any of their tactics until the 90s when there was a second terrorist attack in 1997. Um, that's when they started really changing all their tactics and that's when we're seeing SWAT teams and this and that come out, which Capitol Police SWAT team is some of the best in the world. Those guys are... They train with the FBI and all of that, and if you're if you make FBI SWAT, you're the best Ooh. of the best. Oh yeah, um, yeah there is I, no there is no other there is no like LAPD SWAT's really good, but FBI SWAT's the best of the best. But yeah, so oh, yeah. we're this is so early on, and again, we're we're not used to terrorist attacks, so we're. This is this is just so new that I just I don't think they knew how to handle it. And the standard practice now, when there is a hostage situation, and I to be honest, we this is called a terrorist attack, but it's I don't know if you can consider it that. It's more of a hostage situation that just happens to be religiously motivated. Um, well, yeah, I, but, I, I love it. but they now, yes, you cut off communications. You, you do a number of things, um, depending on where they are, you would cut off communication so that it's only you communicating with them. Um, you try and do numerous things depending on where you are. You try and sweat them out if you can. Uh, cut off the power so the AC stops working. Make them uncomfortable so they want to get out or they can't think clearly. Um, you want to get a burner phone in there to try and communicate with them and try a, try to establish a rapport with them and things like that. Here with them just sitting there sweating it out. Goods and bads. Yes, they didn't rush the place, which means less risk for hostages to be killed. But then you also mess with, oh, hey, they're not going to negotiate. We just might as well kill these people now. Which uh, which um, was a was a fear of the police from the situation, which is why uh, the ambassadors, when they when uh, Abdul Khalis had asked for ambassadors to kind of um, to speak with, they were able they were they acquiesced to that demand and they it actually would pay a pivotal part in talking him down where he was able to talk with um, how, you know, Islamic equals, I guess. So, um, I think this, this does, con one thing that the, what we don't, a lot of people don't understand, don't know about the early stages, I guess, and this, I, I, this is probably one of the earliest stages of Islamic Excuse me. No, I didn't want to cough in the mic. Um, um, one of the earliest terrorist acts of Islamic terrorist attacks, hijackings and kidnappings. Um, Munich in 19, I believe that was 77. Yeah, Munich, the Munich Olympics where the uh, Palestine PLO uh, black hand uh, took hostages of uh, the Israeli athletes in Munich. Initially, they were taken hostage. They were killed when the Germans 
launched a, uh, a failed uh, hostage rescue and they, as you said, Caleb, you know, they, the terrorists were, the terrorists felt they were back, their backs were to the wall. So they killed the, they, they killed the hostages. Um, many of them were started off as that. So, right. but you're, you and, are right. This does is it, it really, the main, I really felt the main motivation was the fact that Abdul Khalees, his family was massacred and he didn't get the justice that he thought he should have. Well, and, and, and to bring up that whole hijacking while we were talking about this, that was going through my head. This, this incident that we're talking about happened in 1977. That Israeli hijacking happened in 1976. Okay, so we have a year prior. We have a um, a response of we're going to storm this aircraft. We know what we're doing. We're going to go in here. We're going to do this. And it becomes a shit show, a total shit show. Number one, because they didn't have the training that they have now. Now you have a, uh, a military group, Delta which that's all they do. They train day in and day out for aircraft hostage rescue. That's what they do. Um, and I can talk about it now because, you know, years have passed, but um, I had the opportunity to design some munitions and weapons for that response team. Um, for that so yeah, it was, it's actually so, very, very cool. Without stating the name, my uh, former uncle, my aunt's ex-husband, the father of my cousins, uh, he is the vice president of a certain gun company that has a contract with the military. Uh, it's one of the largest gun companies in the world. Um, and they, before my dad joined law enforcement, he worked for that company and that right. company designed many, many, many things, uh, and still do to this day. Um, right. they've actually been on, uh, what was that show? Future weapons. Oh, back yeah, in the I day. love that show. So love they were, show. they were on that when we're off the air, I'll tell you what, what company, but they they were on the show Future Weapons. Um, I I've know that facility like the back of my hand. Um, yeah. But yeah, they they that company played a very pivotal part in stopping things like this. Correct. And it also and, should I'm sorry. It, it should also be noted during this siege. What um, blue? Uh, what the heck are they called? Um, one of the precursors to the Delta Force um, was was actually at this location. I am right, right. So, and and I said that to say this. I think that there was so close of a proximity of these incidences happening that in the back of their mind, they're going, "What if?" What if this becomes another standoff? What if what if we storm one of these buildings or all three of these buildings? Number one, without the government stepping in and bringing in military elitists, because that's what it's going to take, um, 
we don't have the manpower or the capability or the training to simultaneously storm all three buildings. I mean, and let's be real, that's something that we still um, struggle with. Yeah, we do. Oh, and that's, I, can, and I was just going to say, that's something that the Navy SEALs hate to do. Yeah. Simultaneous infiltration and, of buildings. And the, it's, havoc. It, it's a tactical nightmare. Um, it is. I I mean just simultaneously entering the same building is a tactical nightmare. But it's a nightmare. When, when oh, you now are, you're talking about three different buildings, three different buildings spread out three, over three different layouts. Correct. Then you have to worry about correct. oh what if my what if my comms get jammed? What if right. this and that? And right. if we don't hit at the same time, these people can call out to the other ones and say hey they're coming. Right. And then exactly. you're, and you're worried it's about death. You're yeah. worried about, I have three different teams. At, at that point in time, in the early 70s, would have been from three different agencies, three mm -hmm. different entities, whether they were civilian, quote-unquote, or military, they would have been separate. You probably would have utilized Delta, um, maybe the SEALs, and FBI. Yeah. The marshals uh, were still coming into their own... The marshals now have one of the top response teams in the nation. They can be anywhere within the United States in under 15 minutes. Uh, that's yeah. ridiculous. By, by that's the ridiculous. way, it, it's blue light. Yeah, I was just about to blue, say. Yes. Blue light counterterrorism yeah. unit was a precursor yes. to Delta Force. And the so, guys were so, there. Yeah. Right. So you have, but you have blue light there. Okay. And I would have loved to have been a fly in the wall for this. My personal opinion is that they're going to the higher up saying, hey, remember what happened in Israel? Remember what happened with that airline? Do you want this? Do you want this press? Do you want these heads on your shoulders in the United States? This is a clusterfuck. We don't want to do this. We need to resolve it the best that we can. Let's give him what we can, like the $750. That's ridiculous. Yeah, that yeah another, I mean, another, another thing that was another demand that I was, again, one of the more bizarre ones. And keep, yeah, keep yeah. in mind, this man so, literally, this man but, literally but it's, man was like, get rid of this movie. But it but it's principle to this guy. You got you to gotta oh, yeah. understand this, sure, this guy sure. feels like he's been wronged. And one of those wrongings sure. was, you guys took this money from me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I'm I'm sure that they went, okay, you know what? We'll give you the 750 We don't care. But let's let's so bring a celebrity. what are some other things that we can do? Muhammad Ali. We're right. definitely not fucking doing that. We're not bringing the greatest yeah. boxer yeah. to ever live. Right. To, and so to a terrorist. All of this going on a short time after the Israeli incident, I can't help but, but feel that that was an in integral part of the decision on, on why they didn't try a forceful infiltration, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, imagine and, if they had tried it, to force... Yeah, if they, imagine if they tried to force their way into the to the district building, it goes wrong. They already proved... Oh, we already yeah. Lost, we, we already lost one guy. With, without a doubt. I mean... 
city councilman literally almost died. What if they right. had killed the whole city council? The, the political and, fallout of just losing an entire well, city's yeah. legislative body would have probably... I, yeah, and, and look at how much bad press that whole debacle received in in 76. I mean, it was on the news for months. And, and you know, that, that whole incident was one of the reasons why Israel changed what they do in their responses. And it had a domino effect to several other um, response, government response groups uh, within that community. Hey, this doesn't work. We need to do this. And that led me to the whole thing that I did with Delta. And uh, because all during that time from 70s up through the 90s, that was a, a prominent fear. And it happened more than, than people realized. And it was, we need a way to do this. This is the way we handle this. This is the way we enter this. We enter it fast and hard. We do A, B, C, D. We need something that can handle these parameters, but not go over here to this area. So, yeah. I mean, honestly, you had all this going on. I mean, in my opinion, I think the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department did a damn good handling of this this thing. All being considered that this, again, like you said, this is a time when these counter-terrorist measures are still being developed. Everything yes. is very, yes. everything is disjointed. You have, yes. you have one agency putting money into it. You have one agency that doesn't even have any kind of plans drawn out. You've got the LAPD, the guys who yep. technically made the first SWAT team yep. uh, operating under the policy of shoot first and then maybe shoot some more people. I don't know. So, and then you've yeah. got the, you know, so this is actually pretty well done. Well, like I said, <coughs> And we had this happen in early 77. And then what's funny is, and I don't think coincidental at all, is November of 1977 is when Delta Force is created. Exactly. Um, and and then just, just so everybody knows, um, Delta Force was created in November of 77. Um Colonel Charles Beckwith, one of the greatest Delta Force colonels in history. He's the man that created the Delta Force. We would not have it without him. He actually was in the UK and was with the British SAS. Um, right. Which are, I mean, SAS are some of the best in the world. They um, are the, the SAS are the, literally wrote. Yeah. A, uh, uh, the wrote the book of counterterrorism. Yeah. They, Charles, oh, yeah. Beckwith, Every, oh, yeah. Everything that we that is structured in Delta Force is structured after the SAS, and uh, we still right. they still didn't teach him everything. Yeah, and they literally like okay, bye. He's like, I'm well, not and there's and there's You're a reason done. that Delta Force and SAS work hand in hand with each other. Um, yeah. I I have I know a couple guys that were Delta Force, um, and they deploy with SAS constantly because of the structure of them. They mesh so well together that these mm -hmm. guys can never meet each other and move like they're like they've known each other for a decade. I, right. I knew right. I had an old acquaintance years ago. I, I believe yes, uh, he always a logistics core, but for a truck driver, he seemed to know a 
awful lot. Like, yeah, yeah. More, yeah. more than that I felt was like the typical dude on the internet just looks up. A but that's what makes them so good is they're able to integrate themselves into any situation, any environment and maintain their, their cool and yet still be effective at what they do. And at that, you know, at the time of this in, in 77, that was non-existent. Oh, no, no, it was still coming up. And in an upcoming episode, we're going to cover, um, we're going to cover one of the more daring, successful daring, uh, hostage rescues of this. Um, something that I love reading about, um, Operation Thunderbolt, the, the Israeli raid on Entebbe Air. We will be covering that. That is part of our terrorist, um, we're we're also we're yeah we're doing a whole line right now of terrorists and things like that um also a lot of fuck-ups that we did not learn from such as waco yep oh Uh, god yeah waco waco is one that we are going to touch on i ruby ridge Yep. Ruby Ridge, yeah. Well, those those will kind of go hand in hand. We'll probably do one after the other cuz they are long enough to be their own thing. So we'll mm-hmm. go one after the other cuz they do play with each other. Oh, um, without a doubt. You would they, not have Waco if it was not for Ruby. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. So I I we are going to be doing uh which I didn't realize that we have a mutual friend in our company who his brother's his brother was delta force by the way i'm gonna have to get with you about who that is i think i know who it is but yeah i obviously opsec we don't want to say the name but yeah but yes um yeah i i just sent him a message because i thought i remembered him saying that but yeah so final thoughts everybody on this situation man i hats off to DC police hats off. I, I think yeah. they, for, for the time frame, um, this era in law enforcement was their, their babies. They're still babies. Let's be real. Um, training is still being developed. Techniques are sp- still being developed. And, and if you look at um, what they were learning, then, compare it to what I learned, compare it to what you guys learned. It's, it's um, archaic uh, to say the least, you know, compared then to now, but for, for what they knew given that time period, I think they handled it tremendously. I think it could have been a very, very different outcome. And I think it could have been very detrimental and could have been a black mark in American history, um, had they made some different decisions. So kudos, man. I don't necessarily, uh, like personally the ones that were involved in the decisions for, for future decisions that they make, you know, but in this particular incidence, I think they were, they were on their game. They, they exuded some wisdom and said, hey, we, we need to take a step back here. Let's not be quick to uh, pull the tr- trigger, literally and metaphorically. Um, and 
it, it just was well done all the way around. Yeah. yeah. Caleb? Uh, I agree. Um, I think for the time, obviously we would do stuff a little differently now, um, but for the time and the training that they had, I think it was handled well. Um, for all of those places to be taken, especially the the first building, which, I mean, they they ended up, in that first building, they ended up taking 134 hostages. Um, and then, oh, yeah. And, yeah, it was, and it then was 11 insane. in the second building, and then X, X amount in the third for only three people or two people to have been killed and one to have been injured. That says a lot. Yeah. Um, and really the second person, the, the security guard, he would, he would die days later. He, yeah. he, he, he died directly of the, of the situation, but it was, it wasn't there, right away. The there, one right away was Maurice Williams. Yeah. There, there was definitely the opportunity for mass casualty and it did not happen. So kudos to you guys. If any of you are still alive and are listening to this, we would love to talk to you. Um, If if any of you were involved in this, uh, OPSEC, if you have to be anonymous, please let us know. But um, yeah, I I think for what they did and what they could do, they made the best of a bad situation. Yeah, I'm personally, the one thing that of all, with all the agencies working together at least i i was just shocked that and i think part of the reason because this was under the carter administration the feds just didn't step in and be like yeah we're taking this over because i mean let's be honest in the middle of dc three buildings one one of them a literal stone's throw away from the white house if this had happened under reagan what do you think oh Oh, the, the the Gipper or whatever the hell they call him would would have done. He probably would have ordered the FBI and Delta right in and just blast everybody. Carter basically told them let the DC police handle it, and that's exactly what they did. And all the resources right there for them to, but they they let they kept it a police matter, and that was it. But so that concludes tonight, folks. What uh, I seeds of Washington. One of the lesser known and almost forgotten, um, but very pivotal um, aspects in American criminal history. Uh, please stay with us for next week where we continue our uh, series on terrorist attacks, both internationally and domestically. Yeah. Um, um, I, once again, I am Ben. Hi, Ben. Hey, Ben. Uh, I, I, <laughs> um, I was, I say, I'm Ben, and then you're supposed to say, I'm Caleb. I'm Aaron. Oh, oh, my bad. My bad. I'm Aaron. Hi. Um, <laughs> um, but no, this we're... Is like the, this is like an awkward <laughs> AA meet. It is. Right, right, um, right. No, <laughs> next week we'll probably get into maybe Timothy McVeigh, I'm thinking. Yeah, um, okay. I'm a, yeah. I love... I, I hate to say I love that story, but I do. It, it's it's a, an interesting story. It, it's a very interesting story, very interesting background. Very iffy with military, but um, but yeah. So we'll probably get a Timothy McVeigh because that does kind of snowball into quite a few other things because yeah, he had his and, hand in quite a few things. Right, and in regards to Timothy McVeigh, there will, uh, I'm sure that will come up is a few. Hmm. 
why why did it happen this way at this time with this particular building yeah that's all we're going to say on that you'll have to tune mm -hmm. in and, yes. and find out exactly why um so with that i would like to thank you for visiting scarlet tavern remember to turn in your glasses push in your seat and as always tip the bard good night everybody good night, good night.